morning, everybody. Good morning. Good morning. We're not How you doing, Tom? I'm doing good. Good to see you, buddy. Oh, yeah. All right. We're going to get rolling this morning. A um, couple of things. Um, I'm actually going to go ahead. I'm going to start us with, a, I want to just read a little bit of scripture. Um, just get us get us rolling. In Foundations, we're studying the book of Acts this year. And so we just started the book of Acts and... Uh, and we're studying, you know, what, about the early church and, and trying to get some direction on how to be the church. And I uh, was reading this and thought about the men's breakfast and uh, figured I might share it with you this morning. So, uh, And it's Acts 2, verse 42. It talks about the fellowship of believers. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. And every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. And when I read when I read that, I thought about the men's breakfast, and I thought about that's what we do, you know. Um, we get together and we break some bread. We don't do it every day, but every month, right? We're on the right path. We're making progress. We weren't doing that before, so who's I'm a slacker, I guess. I got to get this thing going, but um, um, but we're breaking bread, and I just pray that, uh, and we're eating together, and I just pray that today and uh, each time that we meet, we'll have glad and sincere hearts. And that we'll spend time praising God today while we're together. And uh, and uh, that the Lord will continue to add to our number daily, those being saved. So, I uh, just want to share that with you. I think we are, we're doing what we're, this is what we're, we're called to be doing. So, um, thank you for being here today. Um, just so you know, we've got uh, the calendar um, of, uh, of upcoming speakers. Um uh, in uh, October, Patrick Furlong will be leading us. In no- November, Jim Gebhardt. In December, uh, Dave Mueller. So, hope you'll join us. Uh, Stacy also asked that I share. Um, Stacy also asked that I share with you. Um, still looking for people to sign up for the Compassion Experience. So we we did have some folks that signed up uh, uh, last month, but uh, more men are needed. Um, so there's information about the compassion experience, as well as a sign-up sheet on each table. If that's something that you're interested in, a way that you can serve, you know, please consider uh, please consider volunteering for that. Okay, and with that, um, here to introduce uh, Scott Dixon today. Who who here has been in a Sunday school class taught by Scott? <laughs> so uh, we drew quite the crowd today. I'm not sure if it's because. Y'all wanted to come and pray for your football teams. I see all the spirit wear there, right? You're looking for good favor, right? Or, or if it were, yeah, but I, I tend to think that uh, everybody was eager to hear Scott speak again. Um, Scott is a wonderful teacher. I really appreciate, um, I really appreciate when he comes and teaches, just how prepared he is, and um, uh, how insightful he is, and he just, he's, uh, he is very generous and willing to share. He obviously works very hard uh, at studying the Word and um, and really just seeking God. 
and uh, I, I, you know, um, it's a blessing to hear him speak. And Scott, we, we're really grateful that you could be here today. And thank you for uh, arranging your work schedule so you could share with us. So thank you. Y'all notice I don't have my crutch. Greg Davidson busted on me. He's like, so are you going to use your crutch, all your PowerPoints? And I'm like, no, I'm not. So I'm not. And also, um, I actually prepared. Like, I didn't, I wrote down what I wanted to talk about. Y'all notice I never use notes. I never use notes. I was telling the guys at the table, I just got back from San Francisco. I had to do a, a six-hour class and, uh, and film it, you know, so speak for six hours to an empty room and be excited the whole time. <laughs> and, and the production guy was like, would you need a place for your notes? I'm like, notes? It's only a six-hour class. I don't need notes. So. But, um, yeah, thanks for having me this morning, and, and I am glad that I was able to work this out. Y'all know I travel all the time, and uh, I think it's just a matter of if you plan it far enough in advance, you can mark things around it. And that's, that's actually a kind of a apropos to some of the things I want to talk about today. Um, you know, it's one thing to teach a Sunday school lesson where you have a topic that you're going to talk about. And it's another thing to tell about, to talk about kind of your story. And that's a different sort of a thing. And I thought that's a more helpful thing. And that's really what we like to do here is to talk about ourselves and to talk about how did I get to where I am and how, how have I felt the movement of, of God in my life. <clears throat> so that's what I'm going to do. Um, and I think that, that I heard a, a quote as a part of um, an Adam, Adam Hamilton lesson that we just did in our class recently that really stuck. St. Anselm said that theology is faith in search of understanding. And that made a lot of sense to me. And, and that's kind of like the journey that we all stay on. So that's, that's sort of where I start with. Another quote that, that comes out of the early church, the early church, a little after Acts, right, third century, there never was when he was not, right? So this was the, the, the counterpoint to the Arians. Arius was was um, a theologian born in about 250, and he was really working hard to try to understand the Trinity. What does it mean when we say Jesus is the Son of God, but he's one with God the Father, and and the Holy Spirit is wrapped up in there somewhere? How do we understand what the Trinity means? And, and every time you start thinking about it, it just... You can't get to a real clear, understandable, fit-inside-your-head definition. So Arius figured that it must be the case that Jesus as the Son is a created creature of God the Father. And the anti-Arians said there never was when he was not. Jesus is eternal. Jesus has been one with the Father from forever. Right, And so this kind of goes back and forth. And and this was one of those things that, that it, we struggle with. How do we understand all of those aspects of God, like, like the Trinity? How, how do we understand who God is, who Jesus is, how the Spirit works? We, we end up in, in either these, these strained arguments, or we end up in confusion, and people get mad at each other, and churches split, and friends split, and we have sermons. And, and this is not ancient history, right? There was a book not long ago called The Shack, all about how does this Trinity thing work? 
And this is only one example of the sorts of of questions that that break your head, right? They're really hard to fit inside your head. And so I think that one of the things that has been important to me is learning to understand that if we don't look back, if we don't look back at how our forefathers and foremothers in the faith thought and understand and knew Christ and knew their experience of God, then, then number one, we're likely to go down a path that isn't where we intended to go. But it's also going to lead us to an incomplete understanding, right? We we rely on them and and their experience as the church to to help us to understand and to know Christ. Now, at the end of the day, we still get things like, how does this work, right? And so we come up with paradoxes all the time. So often, our understanding of God is rooted in a paradox, something that we can't make a logical sense of, right? I mean, there's simple things like if God is all-knowing and all-loving and all-powerful and all-just, I can't make sense of those at the same time in my mind without coming up with strange rules about that, that that force God into a box. <clears throat> so I think that, that we have to look back and we have to rely on, on what the church has taught us. Now, part of the Arians was we have come to understand their view as heretical, right? And, and the old heresies are nothing, nothing that has gone away. Um, I mean, you watch all these shows on TV and, and I kind of call it the heresy channel rather than the history channel sometimes. <laughs> because of the things that come on, oh, the excluded books of the Bible, oh, what about Jesus' wife and stuff like that. And, and the thing is that, that it's not that it's all about, oh, we have to follow the rules because the rules are the rules. It's that, We've learned together as the community of faith, and God has revealed God's self to the community, and that if we set down the path of, it's me and Jesus, and that's it, and all that I know is what I know, then then we're going to fall short, right? We we actually had a, a I'm not going to say an argument, but a, a difference in one point in our Sunday school. We had some folks who didn't like the fact that we did Bible studies that brought in different writers' points of view, right? Because they said, well, that's just opinion. I'm like, well, isn't what you read and say opinion too? And these are opinions based in in years and years and years of struggle and prayer, right? So so we learn from each other. That's why we come here today, right? That's why we're here this morning, is so that we can learn from each other. But another thing with this whole idea of, of, oh, this is the rules and the rules are the rules, if we fall into that trap, if we fall into that trap of of how I have to understand, if I try to come up with a complicated argument, then it feels like to me, and this is a thing that has come a long time for me to begin to understand, that I'm putting a box around who God is, right? If I start constructing a strong argument that says, this is how the Trinity must work, or this is how God must be, I'm essentially limiting who I'm allowing God to be for me, right? And then when I start approaching things that way and saying that if you really want to be part of my community, you have to understand things my way, you're putting up walls and you're having very technical churchy discussions that exclude everybody on the outside. But when you allow God to be God, God opens that circle up rather than putting the wall up. 
The mystery of God is what grows the circle. That mystery is bigger than we can fit inside our heads. And, and the rules shrink that circle when we say, you must follow these rules to be part of my community. Like Pharisees. Then you're shrinking <clears throat> the world that, that God can live in and the, the impact that God can have on you. So there never was when he was not. I kind of view that as, as a statement about how I feel. I can never remember a time when Christ was not part of my life. From my earliest days, our family taught me about Jesus' love. And it taught me that this is, this is the way it is. It's just the way it is, right? I can never remember a time when Jesus wasn't a real part of every day. I can never remember a time when our family didn't share that openly all the time. Even to the point where it was just a part of every day. So my mom, my mom is crazy. One day, my little brother, minding his own business, he's laying on the floor watching TV. My mom comes walking in, and he's in high school, mind you. <clears throat> and she says, today we're going to learn about baptism. Some people do baptism by sprinkling. Others do baptism by pouring, and she pours a glass of water on him. <clears throat> this is my mom, right? I mean, and, and that was just a normal sort of a thing. You would kind of... That she, you know, and if you didn't have the context of having a foundation in Jesus, that would have been completely weird. Now it was kind of weird, but it wasn't. <laughs> it, it wasn't as weird as the day that Mom wasn't thinking really well, and she was stirring her tea, and then my little, my poor little brother, and then she goes, "Is this hot?" and puts a spoon on his neck, <laughs> and it leaves this big old red welt right here. And then my brother, not thinking clearly, when he got to school, says, where did that big red thing on your neck come from? And he goes, oh, my mom did that? <laughs> yeah, that went over well. <laughs> but there never was when he was not, right? So, so, And it goes all the way back. My parents, my grandparents, my granddad. I mean, I, some of the earliest things I remember is, is, and I think I'm turning into my granddad. I remember he taught Sunday school for 40 years. And whenever I was visiting, we got up early and went to church and turned the lights on and turned the heat on before everybody got there to get it ready, you know. My other grandparents uh, sang in the choir forever. And when they were retirement age and their kids, I mean, I was in high school at that point. Somebody needed to run the youth group. They signed up, you know. So that's just kind of the world that I always grew up in. Now, my parents were really young when I was born. Mom was 19, right? Mom went off. And mom and dad met mom's freshman year. Dad was a junior. And then they got married before senior year. And I was born right after dad graduated. So mom was 19 when I was born. The relationship that we had when I was a little guy or when I was in high school or in college is different than the relationship we have now. Now we're good friends, right? My dad and I vacation, just the two of us. We're planning a trip right now. We've decided to invite my brother this time. But, but, I mean, and we have a great time when it's just us. We've always done that kind of thing. Uh, and the same thing with my brother and my parents. They, they likewise will, will, will spend special time together. Um, my, my little brother took each of my parents individually with him. He teaches in Asia, and so he took them to Taiwan. And uh, it was funny, after he, he invited Dad, and he said, Dad, I got the hotel already paid for, I'm on expenses, and I got points for your trip. And he's like, okay. And then my brother called me and says, I got the hotel, but you've got the points. 
<laughs> Great, thanks. <laughs> but, I mean, it was a really cool thing because, because we had different relationships, too. My brother and my mom tend to do more together, whereas my dad and I tend to do more together. And I, I don't think my brother had ever gone on a vacation with just him and my dad. And that was great. I was perfectly happy to send them. Uh, I, was, I, was, I was also surprised they didn't kill each other, right, in three weeks in China. But, um, but it, it was, you know, that's the kind of, you grow and you change in your relationship uh, as you go along. And, and as you get older and become adults, you can become friends with your parents. But they're still parents. And it's different than your friends who have always been your friends, right? Gregory of Nyssa was a monk in the 6th century. And he talked about that kind of relationship that we might have with God. He says that, that, that you may begin your relationship with God out of fear of punishment, right? And, and you have that relationship because you're afraid of what might come. This is kind of like hell insurance, right? And, and you can grow to the point where that relationship may be more rooted in uh, um, desire for a reward. So we've gone from insurance against hell to looking for the reward of salvation. I want to get to heaven. He says only in the final stage is it a relationship based in being a member of God's household, a friend of God, right? And I think that's really powerful. That And that feels like the kind of relationship that that we have that we can be members of God's household. But even then, that's not friends between equals. It's not friends between equals. It's it's intimates. But God is still God, and I'm not. I'm not, right? It's like being friends with your parents. They're still your parents and still have that special place. One of the first things that I remember as as part of my Christian life is is my second grade Sunday school teacher. We were at First Methodist Church in Jackson, Tennessee. And oh, by the way, have y'all ever done any studies with Jim Moore? Any of the Jim, the 9,000 Jim Moore books? He was kind of the Adam Hamilton before Adam Hamilton. Um, he was our associate pastor at this point. And, uh, his kids, his, his daughter used to go here, didn't she? Jody was, she was a member of this church for a while. Um, but, um, my second grade teacher, Ms. Williams, she taught us over and over, love God, love others, Love yourself. She boiled it down that simple. That was it. Love God, love others, love yourself. And by making it simple like that to these second graders, it's stuck. It always stuck. That's, you know, that has been one of the core things to me. Love God, love others, and don't forget to love yourself too, right? Because we're all created in God's image. God created all of us. And, you know, you don't think about it as a second grader. A few years back, I was thinking about that, and and all I knew is she's Miss Williams, right? And then we moved away, and so I I got in touch with the church to try to find her and tell her how much it had meant to me. And it it turns out that that she had died a couple years previous, but they said that she taught little kids Sunday school for a thousand years, right? (laughs) But think of all the people that she taught. Love God, love others, love yourself, right? Mom played piano for a class in that church that was a bunch of old guys that had started out together as second graders and their te- even yeah I think it was second graders and their teacher had promoted up with them and now the class was all in their late 80s and had been together for 75 years right so that's kind of cool that was kind of cool dad sang in a men's choir there and there was a guy in the choir 
for Sunday night church, they had the men's choir. There was a guy in the church that, um, in the choir, his name was Chico. Chico was a professional wrestler. <laughs> and he would take the bus home from Knoxville, the overnight bus on Saturday night, so he could be there for church on Sunday. And that was always, you know, those are the sorts of things that mean a lot. And, and they're, and they're, they're, you know, outside of how, what can we figure out and explain. But this love God, love others, and love yourself is really what drove the monks to the desert in the third century. They were trying to figure out, how do I do that? What does that mean? What are the limits of that? Now, the Pharisees, when they saw the law, made limits and said, okay, here is how far you can walk, and it still means you haven't worked on the Sabbath. Here's what you're obligated to do. And Jesus, over and over, tells us that these are these obligations are are not even the bar on the bottom, right? We have to we have to understand that it's a whole whole all of us kind of a thing. And and the other part of that though was don't forget the last one: love others and love yourself, because we're all created in God's image. That means it's like what Paul said: to to don't think of yourself too highly, but to think of yourself appropriately highly. Right? With sober reflection. Paul was real clear about this. He wasn't saying, don't understand yourself to be dirt. He says, understand that you're created by God in God's image and are therefore worthy. But so is everybody else, including those people that you can't stand. Right? And bear that in mind as you deal with people. That forces you into this humility. Right? Because we have to have a sober assessment of ourselves. And that was the thing that, that my parents always taught me. Understand who you are. Right? And don't rank yourself, but understand who you are and make sure that you appreciate who you are. The Psalms tell us that we're wonderfully made, right? And we need to not forget that. And and I guess it's funny for a little kid, but I remember too, from being a little kid, one of my very favorite passages has always been from Isaiah 6, right? In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord high and lofty on his throne, and around him were the seraphim. And his train of his garment filled the room, and above it were the seraphim. And with two two wings they covered their eyes, with two wings they covered their feet, and with two wings they flew. And they cried one to another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the posts of the door were shaken by the voice of him who cried out, and the house was filled with smoke. So I said, Woe is me, for I am undone, because I am a man of unclean lips. And I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a live coal, which he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth with it and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your iniquity is taken away and your sin purged. Also, I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? Then I said, Here I am, send me. And and it's weird. I mean, you know, little kids usually are doing like Noah's Ark and stuff like that. But I remember Isaiah 6 from forever. That was always one that struck me. It was this huge picture. God's holiness filling the place. You know, it's all so mysterious, but it's also comforting at the same time. Because there's, it's, it's, it's a, a picture to fill you with awe, but to know that God is near, right? And, and, it feels very vulnerable. Isaiah clearly felt very vulnerable in this situation. But he also felt very confident in the presence of God. Because when God said, who will go? He said, me, me, right? And and the thing is, I've always thought that this maybe had, had a point for me. 
and I've struggled to figure out what the send was forever. What is it that the send is? And I think that I'm kind of coming to understand that it's not a thing. It's an over and over thing. It's listening to the next thing that you're sent to do, to figure out what is the thing that I need to do now. I didn't want to start teaching Sunday school. I didn't want to start teaching disciple. But enough people said, you ought to do this. I thought, oh, what the heck, I'll give it a try. Because previously when I tried it, it was a bad thing. Um, but I think that's because it was high school. I got tagged to lead all of the high school kids for a year in a church I was in in Pennsylvania. And I learned. And, and you learn by listening. And I learned that teaching kids is not my thing. <laughs> At all. None of them. But, but I really enjoy being a part of those adult discussions, right? And, and so, so it's a matter of here, who's gonna, who, who? But even then, it was answer a call. I mean, I remember that, that when I got rooked into that, our pastor came over to my house for dinner, and he's like, you know, I think you'd be really good at this. You ought to do this. And I think he was desperate. But, um, but it's listening and then responding to that call, listening like Isaiah did and responding to the call, even in that vulnerable, vulnerable moment, because you know that, that you have the confidence of, of God calling you to do it. So one of my favorite hymns, kind of along that same line, is Holy, Holy, Holy. And, and it captures to me that big mysteriousness, not only kind of the Isaiah picture, but it also to me captures that kind of Revelation 21 picture of the new the new creation and and i can remember being in my grandparents churches i can remember being with my dad's parents in fort smith arkansas i can be remember being in the little tiny church with my mom's parents in wilson arkansas and standing with them and singing and you can hear them you can remember hearing them and it was kind of weird um after my mom's parents had died when we would sing this song i could always hear them with me when we sang that i could hear my 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 granddad's on this side because he always sat on the aisle and my grandmother on this side i could hear them as clear as when we were there right and and that was a special thing to me and, and i'm not calling out you know any kind of ghosts or spirits but that was a, a a time it feels like that the boundaries between here and heaven get rubbed thin right and you and you and you feel these mysterious things when kathleen and i were married we chose to have that hymn as a part of our of our service so that my grandparents could be there, you know? And that was important to me. It was really important to me. And then as we went along, one day we were singing that and I could hear my dad's mom. And I thought, that's weird because she wasn't dead, but she didn't live much longer. And then the same thing kind of happened with my granddad. And so it's weird, you know, sometimes when we sing those songs, I can hear all of them. And that's a nice thing. It's a nice thing. And it's mysterious. What is that? I don't know. Can you put, can you put a definition around that? Can you put an explanation around that kind of thing? Or is it, or is it kind of that, that God moment, you know, where, where, where you feel the love that you've always felt and that, that guidance that you always got from them? Um, it's kind of like, what are you going to do with it? Well, there's not much you can do it. You can either throw it away and disregard it and say it didn't happen. Or you can kind of embrace it and embrace the mystery that goes along with God. Mystery is an important thing. You know, if, if you try to come up with rigid explanations of everything, it's always going to fail. It's always going to fail. Moses tells Israel in the Shema how they need to relate to him in a way that, that 
just blows the big mystery up in a big way. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your strength. With these words which I command you today shall be in your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children. You shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, when you rise up. You shall bind them on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorpost of your house and on your gates. This is like that, don't be shy. Don't be shy about talking about God. Don't be shy about talking about God at home, with your kids, with your family, when you're out. It's who you are, right? Do it. And, and you know, like my mom pouring water on my brother. She's, it was part of our every day, right? And and I think that that don't be shy about it is something that, that we need to, to take in. I have a customer, B&H Photo. Have y'all ever bought anything from B&H Photo? Have you ever tried to buy anything from B&H Photo on Friday night? <laughs> it ain't happening. It ain't happening. Um, I went up to visit these guys. The whole company is Hasidic Jews. You walk in, the coat rack is full of big black coats and big black hats. I was like, how do y'all keep those straight? I mean, they all look alike, and they're all with ringlets and tassels. And at every door, as you come out of the elevator, as you walk into a room, there's a mezuzah. You will bind this on your doorposts, right? Not all of them are Hasidic Jews. Their manager is this big Indian guy who wears really bad plaid suits. <laughs> right? It's really funny. But, um, and, and, but that's, you know, that's how they are. And when you go to make a purchase on the website for B&H Photo, and it's Friday afternoon, it says, we'll save your shopping cart, and we'll send you a text alert once it's no longer Sabbath, right? And they're a big company. They're a big company. And and they're doing great at it. But they're not going to compromise. They're going to embrace what Moses told them to do and how they know that mystery of God, right? And I think that's pretty cool. So this whole idea of love God, love others, love yourself. Ms. Williams talked about it. And and we kind of hear that other places, right? The Pharisees had heard that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees. They gathered together. <laughs> then one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question, testing him. They said, Teacher, which is the greatest commandment of the law? Jesus said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. Love God, love others, love yourself. But one of the other things that comes out of that, to me, is this sounds like the basis of a proof, right? On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. This is like the axioms that start out a proof. And that that if I start with that, I ought to be able to reason through and figure out the rest of the law and the prophets. Jesus said so, right? So so we can get to that place. And and so if I start with love God, love others, love yourself as the assumptions, I can I can reason through and get to things. Well, it sounds that way, and, and kind of as a as a reason based guy that, that that appealed to me. And we get to this paradox that we started with of there never was when he was not, and we trying to figure out all of what does that mean and then we try to reason through how we need to be based on what Jesus says. And and we end up with, again, these paradoxes. You know, the little kids will say, if God is all-powerful, can he make a rock so big he can't pick it up? That's a simple statement, right? 
And it's a perfectly reasonable statement. If God is all-powerful, then. Okay, but I can't make sense of that. And so, so these sorts of things really baffled me for the longest time. That, that we always got to these confusing, uh, either convoluted arguments, right? So you go try to read, you know, a, a seminary paper and, and, and it's this, this technical argument, or it's, we run into to a, an unexplainable. And I think that what happens is that, like I said, when we do this, we box God in. We limit who we allow God to be. Maybe it's a cultural thing. <clears throat> Maybe it isn't. Um, Jim Fleming. Y'all know Jim Fleming? Down at Biblical and, uh, they changed their name. Used to be Explorations and Antiquity. Now they're the, the, they have a new name. Down in LaGrange where, if you haven't been there, go. It's in LaGrange. Yeah. Jim has been here several times for conferences and he talks about the difference in the Eastern approach and the Western approach. And he talks about how we as, as fundamentally rooted in Greek reason try to make descriptions that are precise and make precise arguments and pr- try to be complete when we describe something. In the East, when they describe someone or let you tell, tell you about someone, they tell you, they, they tell you about who someone is by what they do, right? They make qualitative statements that are neither intended to be complete nor are intended to be consistent, right? So you talk about the different aspects of someone and all of those together paint a big picture. Right? Think about Jesus in his I am sayings. I am the good shepherd. I'm a light. I'm the light. All, and think about the way that God is described in the Old Testament as a rock. God's not a rock. God is for us like a rock. Right? And so these things are, are a difference in how we approach our worldview. And, and that, that broader way, I think helps. It helps us to understand things better. It helps us to embrace that, that mysterious, and that paradoxical and those things that we can't make make real uh, arguments for, it helps us not to put things in a box, right? Now, kind of a side note, it feels to me, and this is just a side note and it's probably a better discussion for another day, that part of this inability to fully describe our experience of God is part of what keeps us from being willing to share it with other people and being willing to talk about it all the time in our daily life. We're afraid that when we talk to somebody, we'll, we'll get to the, I don't know. And and if they're not a faithful person, then that will turn them off. Or we'll get caught in some game of gotcha with somebody. So we don't start that, right? But that's another day. Um, so, like I said, I, I'm kind of this reason kind of guy. I, I, I have two degrees in computer science. I've been a computer guy for, I don't know, a million years. I bought my first PC in 1979. And, and that's kind of where I come out of. Um, but I have, over the years, figured out that that whole logical explanation of things falls very short. And that, that it just, it doesn't satisfy. It's not a satisfying thing. And it really came home to me when I was in a graduate uh, logic class one time. I was in a math class. And we were studying uh, about Kurt Gödel. Now, he was a logician in the 20th century. And he was trying to understand about what are the limits of what we can do with a mathematical proof. What can we prove? What can we understand? And so he came with two key theorems that, to me, went far beyond just the limits of describing what I can prove in a mathematical way. First, he talked about completeness. Let me get a pen. 
So he talked about completeness. Now, if you think about all of the true statements that there are, So if we start out with all everything that's true, right? This is true. Perfect. Let's find a pen that works. One of the things that I have learned is when I go to customers and I write on the board with a pen that doesn't work, I throw their pen away. Because it didn't work. Because they just put it back in the bag. Let's try again. I'll try this one. Brown. All of the things that are true, right? And if we say we want to use our tools of reason to prove that they're true, okay? We want to prove all of them are true, then that's complete. It turns out what he proved was that if we use our tools and if we're going to create a world where everything that is true can be proven, (coughs) that you can't help but have provable stuff that's not true. This is graduate logic. I understand that. Yeah. <laughs> the key is that, 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 okay, so if I'm going to be able to prove everything that's true, I also end up proving some things outside that circle that I can't tell if they're inside or outside. All I can tell is they're in the box. Right? Then he went on to talk about incompleteness. Let's see if we can find a pen that works better than the black one. And we pull into the magic bag. We'll try another black one. So if again we start out with all that's true, right? He talked about incompleteness. It says, if I want to be certain that everything I prove is actually true, then I end up with box inside, right? What happens here? It says that there are an infinite number of true things that I can never get to with reason, right? Those are your two choices. Those are the two ways that a system can work. Now, what does that mean? Why is that such a revelation? Well, so it says to me that either you live in a world that's complete but inconsistent, or you live in a world that's consistent but mystery exists. We have to live here. Otherwise, I'm never sure when Eric takes off in his airplane if those flaps are going to grab wind or if they're going to make him do something else, right? You don't know. You don't know. You have no way of being certain. Here, it's a paradox, right? I have certainty, but I have all this stuff that I can never get to. And the key to me is that that those empiricists, listen to some of the arguments of the atheists. They really believe that all that's true is provable, right? That we live in an empirical world. Blame the French. (laughs) This comes out of the Age of Enlightenment of the 18th century, right? And, And so... I mean, this was for sitting there watching a proof. And this was a huge revelation to me. This was a God speaks to me kind of a moment, right? Because all of a sudden I understood there's all this stuff out there, an infinite amount of stuff. It's, you know, like Paul Simon spinning in infinities. You know, you can call me Betty. But, um, (laughs) but we have to live in that world. And, and that was a big deal. That was a big deal because, because finally you understand that, that, that it gives, it gives, it gives, importance and validation to the fact that there's this mystery and that it's real and it's every bit as true as the stuff that we can prove and we have to embrace that if we if we don't we miss out can god make a rock that's so big he can't pick it up that's over here right because my tools and my head 
Oh, by the way, those tools that we're using to understand all of this, remember, they're also part of God's creation and are therefore less than God. (coughs) And so all of these things, in a very twisted ball of yarn kind of way, to me are ways where if you if you dig back and say why 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 there're ways that that we have to unravel where we put ourselves above god and we have to re-ravel that right so that was a big deal to me it kind of is like you know paul in in first corinthians now we see through a mirror dimly then we'll see face to face we'll see what this mystery is when we see god sitting high and lofty on his throne and the seraphim surrounding him Um, So mystery ends up being how we often experience God, and we have to allow ourselves to do that. And and sometimes it comes bursting through in ways that you didn't explain, that you can't explain, and they're kind of weird. Mike has talked about kind of hearing God's voice. That has happened to me twice, right? And and even with this mystery thing, I've never been a kind of a emotional outpouring guy. I don't feel a need to raise my hands, you know. And, and I understand people who do, and it's an important thing. I don't get there, right? I also don't clap because I can't sing and clap at the same time. It just is not happening. I can't do two things at once. But, but there's been times where, when I have heard a voice, just a phrase, that was very clear to me that it was a word of God, and you feel this whole other thing. So shortly after Kathleen and I got married, we were going back and forth and back and forth about what are we going to give to the church? She grew up in a different world than I did, and and her world was she spent lots and lots of time, but didn't have money, right? And so we were loggerheads, right? And and it was it was becoming a problem. It was becoming a problem, and and I was praying about it. And then one day, as we're getting ready to sign a pledge card, I heard a voice say, "Here's what I want." One half of a sentence, but at that same time, it's like when you when you. Paul on Damascus Road talks about the light, and but he has this whole revelation after that. I, I kind of felt like, okay, what God has said is, if you do this, this is what I want you to do. I don't want to be a problem in your young marriage. I don't want to come between you. I'm working with both of you in the way that you need to be worked with. So follow me, and we're, we'll be good. We'll be good. You know. So so that was it was to me a very obvious thing. Then and then had we not listened to it, this would have been a problem from day one. Later on, years later, Kathleen was having a, a health problem, a pretty serious one, and she had to go to an appointment, and that she she was, and we were both really scared about it, and she was adamant that she was going by herself. She was going to face this on her own, and we were both worried, so she went. I went as well. She didn't know this, parked outside and was praying about it, and while she was in there, I heard that same voice, it's going to be okay. It didn't say it's going to be okay. You're not going to have a lot of work you got to do out of this. It's going to be okay, and it was a lot of work. But we've moved past it, and it's good now, right? And and those two were both. You hear a short thing, and you have an understanding, and then a piece that comes with it. You can't explain that. You can't. You can't put this in this box. This is in this box, right? The danger is that mystery is is in being vulnerable. And I'm going way too long. I'll hurry up. I only got a little bit left. Um, in being in being vulnerable. You're vulnerable, right? So twice other than that, you become, you can be messed with. We, You know that we're crazy for going to, to Kauai, and we had been working for years and years and years to move to Kauai. We have since decided that's a bad idea and are not doing that. But we were flying into Kauai, going into land, and as I'm looking out the window of the airplane, 
coming into land, I hear a voice say, this is the last time you'll see this and something awful is going to happen to Kathleen. What are you going to do with that? What are you, what are you going to do with this? What I hadn't paid attention to was I didn't have, first of all, it was way long, and then I didn't have a feeling of peace and understanding that came with it. Just panic. Just panic. And this, it kind of messed up that whole trip. I mean, I didn't say anything to Kathleen, but it kind of weirded me out. And it was, it was, it wasn't right. The whole trip was weird. And we came home and it stayed weird for a long time. Uh, and I wasn't terribly excited anymore about moving and, you know, it just wasn't, it didn't feel good. Later on, Kathleen was in the midst of another, another health scare and a pretty bad one. And I heard the voice say, this isn't it yet. <laughs> and I, I, I told a friend about this. He goes, that's not the voice of God. That's the voice of the enemy. It all became clear. When you become vulnerable, when I was recording, I did that a couple times, and then you have to start over. I'm not starting over. Um, but when you... That could be it. Yeah, yeah. That's what they did. They just clip it out, but you have to start the slide over, you know. But um, when you open yourselves and allow yourself to be vulnerable to, to this stuff outside the box, you also have to be on your guard, Right? You have to be on your guard to make sure that 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 mystery is God's mystery. Paul tells us in First Thessalonians, "Do not quench the spirit. Treat prophet, don't treat prophecies with contempt, but test them. Hold on to what is good. Reject what's evil." So I guess kind of to, to to head towards a close. Y'all know Oswald Chambers. He wrote "My Utmost for His Highest." Go read his biography. We got a copy down in the parlor. It's outstanding. Outstanding. He had a saying that, that really, where he was embracing this mystery, right? He said, trust God and do the next thing. Don't try to figure it out. Do the next thing you're called to. When God says, here I am, send me, do the next thing. You don't necessarily know what that next step is. And think about the, the, the covenant, the Wesleyan covenant liturgy that we do. It also kind of has this trust God and do the next thing. Um, this whole thing of embracing the mystery is trusting that the creator who made the mystery is the same creator who, who came to us in Jesus and that created us in, in, in God's image, right? Our biggest thoughts are too small to hold, to hold all of this in. So we have to remember, no matter what happens, that the Christ love continues to be eternal. Now even there, that's a funny thing. Eternal is a funny word. We talk about eternal. And it's like Inigo Montoyo. I think you use that word and do not know what it means. Right? We often use it meaning that it doesn't end. Eternal means it doesn't begin either. Right? So when we say Christ's love is eternal, that's really what it is. It, it was, it never was when he was not. All along, Christ has always been there. God has always been there together with the Spirit as one that we really can't ravel out and we don't need to we don't need to and and the communion liturgy says it you know and and this is what's the mystery of faith we use this in our liturgy christians all over the world all over time have used this and the mystery of faith always comes down to christ has died christ is risen and christ will come again right and and that's a mystery and so we have to to not allow ourselves to be boxed in to be limited in who we let god be we have to, to go big, right? And, you know, things in my head go in different directions and, and everything connects to something else. But I think that, that that go big and allow God to be who God is has been an important thing for me. So, let's pray.
Gracious Lord, we do thank you for this time where you bring us all together and help us to support one another, to share our stories so that we can we can learn from each other. Help us to share in your work and to listen closely so that when you do say, who will go, we can say, send me. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. All right, let's get... Give it up again for uh, Scott going big today, so way to go. Awesome stuff. Uh, just a couple things, so sorry we went a little long. Patrick, good news, man. You get to follow that up. That's right. All right. Uh, so, God made us in our image. We're all different. Axioms, proofs, the, I mean, just, I'm lost, right? So the good news, second piece of good news is it was recorded. So if, like me, you need to listen to it three or four times, it will be on the website and, and, and uh, we'll be able to grasp it. But uh, actually, just want to say, Scott, thank you so much. That was unbelievable. And uh, I just, uh, it was such a blessing. And uh, I hope... Uh, I hope all of you heard a word, uh, heard, heard something from God through Scott today. So thank you for being here. Have a blessed weekend.